Welcome to Zebra Talks, where people living with hypermobility syndromes hear their experiences reflected in conversations with guest experts and fellow zebras living their best spendy lives. I'm your host, Dr. Libby Hinesley, physical therapist and author of Yoga for Bendy People. The information and opinions shared on this podcast should not be taken as medical advice and are not a substitute for diagnosis and treatment by a qualified healthcare professional. And now, let's get started with today's Zebra Talk. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Tina Wang. We're going to be talking about some of her exciting research on fascia and some of the interesting differences in connective tissue between bendy people and non-bendy people. I'll let you know a little bit more about her. Dr. Tina Wang is a medical doctor board certified in the specialty of physical medicine and rehabilitation. She is a fascia researcher and has a special focus on hypermobility spectrum disorders, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Her published research focuses on ultrasound characteristics of fascial dysfunction to improve clinical understanding, diagnostics, and treatments of myofascial pain syndromes, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, and hypermobility spectrum disorders. Dr. Wang is an assistant professor at medical schools in the Southern California area and is core faculty for the musculoskeletal curriculum, including the use of ultrasound-based diagnosis and interventions. She has trained under and lectured for the University of California at Los Angeles Leadership Education in Neurodevelopmental Disabilities Program, a National Institutes of Health initiative. Dr. Wang is also a yoga practitioner and studies under the lineage of T. Krishnamacharya and T. K. V. Desikachar. Welcome, Dr. Wang. I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Great. I'd love to start by asking you to describe your own experience with hypermobility and how that has shaped the work that you do now. Yeah, absolutely. I started working with performing artists. So I was a dancer and that was my all-consuming interest was dance, both for sanity and for the art form and the expression. So as I was going through school and I realized, oh, there's this niche specialty where you get to work with performing artists. Yeah, that's for me. And that was my first exposure to hypermobility was as a dancer and working with performing artists. So one of the best tricks I ever learned as a dancer was how to relocate my own sublux joints. I'd <laughs> hobble around the navicular with sublux. I can't, my foot after class, one of my dancer colleagues was like, wow, that's so easy. Just do this ballet rollover like we do in class. It's just pop back in. Wow. It was so empowering. And with that framework, I never saw hypermobility as a disadvantage. I always thought it was just like, wow, what a great thing that I can bend so far and my foot will do this. And it really set the foundation for how I felt and approached working with people with hypermobility. It was always with that curiosity and that framework that I was exposed to through Performing Arts Medicine Association. That was the association that I first started working with as a student and then professionally 
And one of my research mentors, Jeff Russell, in his research lab, we dealt quite a bit with hypermobility as well. And we never had it in such a a light of pathology. It was just a curiosity. Mm -hmm. Wow, dancers are hypermobile. What does this mean? And back in those days, we didn't know. We're like, wow, cool. And wow, how many different ways are there to measure hypermobility? There's so many. All of us think of the Biden score, but there are so many ways to measure hypermobility. And in those early years, those were the conversations. Is this an issue? Even before my time with musicians, that was the conversation too. Hmm. Oh, look at their elbows, look at their fingers. And they're, they're telling us that it's awesome that yes. their finger does that because they can play their instrument a lot better. So that was really the first exposure and how I, I started working with hypermobile populations. All right. Very interesting. I have um, read a little bit about your research on fascia, and I would love for you to tell listeners a brief overview about what fascia is, how it works, and then I want to get into some of the interesting, unique features of fascia within the hypermobile population. Yeah, that's a huge question, but I know. It's not a simple answer, and there's not an answer that will please everyone. And I'm also a member of the Fascia Research Society. I am active with them. I give lectures with them. And that is one of the overarching questions is how do we define fascia? Mm. We can't just use this term loosely. Then as a scientist, as a clinician, I'm not taken seriously. So there's this overwhelming theme of trying to come to a consensus, and we're unable to. The 2017 Fascia Congress, there was a Delphi process, the Fascia Nomenclature Committee, and they went at it for hours, and we still are. There was recently the Fascia Research Society put together another convention where we all came together and discussed definitions. But the 2017 Delphi process came up with two definitions, and that's what's most commonly used right now. And one is the anatomic histologic definition. That describes fascia as sheets and their dissectable aggregates of connective tissue that form beneath the skin, and they enclose organs. Very, very specific definition. Mm -hmm. And so when we communicate about fascia, we have to really be aware of who our audience is. When we talk to fascia researchers, we tend to use the second terminology, the fascial system. Mm -hmm. And it's a functional diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And this one is a three-dimensional continuum of soft tissue. It might be loose, dense, fibrous, connective tissue, collagen, and it permeates the whole body. And it includes elements that we as fascia-based practitioners and scientists and clinicians are thinking about, like adipose tissue, adventitia, neurovascular sheet, aponeurosis. When we talk about deep and superficial fascia, epineurions, joint capsules, ligaments, meninges for those who do cranial osteopathic work, 
visceral tissues. These are all then included under this functional definition of the fascial system. I know that was a long answer for what is fascia and what's the definition of fascia. It's really helpful, though, and interesting to get a little insight into these bigger conversations that are ongoing as a way to just say, hey, this is a really evolving field of study, and we're going to learn so much more about it over the coming years, I would say. Yeah, and it's really important for us to continue this discussion on terminology rather than using this term so loosely, because it then becomes associated with concepts and elements that may not follow a scientific process, which is completely fine. But when we're using scientific language and nomenclature, we do have to define that. Yeah. When it comes to, um, I don't know if this is fair for you, but I'm going to ask you. When it comes to describing the definition of fascia to the non-medical scientific person, that becomes really difficult. And my question for you is, how do you describe it to your patients? I normally describe it in that part two functional way where I put it under a big umbrella of it is a type of connective tissue, a type of collagenous connective tissue that connects all of our parts, separates all of our parts. Every muscle fiber is intertwined with fascia around every cell, every fascicle, every muscle belly, every muscle group, transmits force across joints, is integrated with tendons and ligaments. It's a very global picture of what fascia is as a system that um, provides passive structural support to the body, at least relatively passive as compared with muscle support. So that's a bit of a ballpark of how I would start to describe it. It's so difficult because really on a microscopic scale, the entire human body consists of intracellular and then extracellular matrix that is organized loosely or in an organized fashion the matrix material then may change. The cellular communication occurs through this. And it's in every single organ. So then how do we even describe to the, the non-medical person what that is? I struggle a lot with that. And I love your description. It's a huge thing to try to get one's mind around. What is it? What does it do? And then how is it specifically relevant for people with hypermobility syndromes? And maybe that's the next question for you to describe. How is <clears throat> understanding the function, at least, of fascia so relevant specifically for people with hypermobility syndromes? Let's start there. And then I'd love to hear a bit about your research from there. So clinically, we know when we touch someone with hypermobility, that their tissue is soft. It's part of the diagnostic criteria, <laughs> is tissue texture. Part of the early literature was using sonoelastography. So that tells us the stiffness of the tissue that in general, people with EDS have softer tissue. In general, people with HSD, EDS, because the early literature uses JHS. Uh, mm -hmm. classifications, they have weaker force output, so less force output when doing the same task. 
And so then looking at some of the molecular studies and translating that into clinical research, what we found, Dr. Stecco and I conducted a study on the stiffness of the tissue in EDS compared to those without EDS, with and without pain. So we have normal values too there. And what we found was that in agreement with his study, where he found that the extracellular matrix, the loose connective tissue, is thicker in people with neck pain. So those are just non-EDS people who have neck pain. They have thicker loose connective tissue in their deep fascia. And we found the same in EDS subjects, but they were even thicker. So this type of pathology is exaggerated. In addition, we found that people with pain in general have a greater tissue differential, meaning the muscle might spasm, but the thickening of that deep fascia might be soft. And so when we go and palpate or touch and assess these patients, we'll feel these trigger points, these stiff areas, Mm -hmm. and then we can treat them. Mm -hmm. But in people with EDS, this tissue stiffness didn't occur. It was the same uniform stiffness through all these layers of connective tissue. Um, And so this has a few implications. It means that when we go in to palpate our patients with HSD and EDS, that makes it really tricky. We need a lot of patient feedback. Layered specific palpation skills that we do in osteopathy, that can be a little bit tricky if the tissue differential is so narrow too. It's not that it can't be done. It's just that it's challenging. The other thing is force transmission. So force transmission is going to be impaired because we need differential tissue stiffness. So load-bearing tissues, so we looked at the IT tract, iliotibial tract, and the tissue differential there was reduced. And we need diff tissue Mm -hmm. in load-bearing areas for force transmission. So we did a follow-up study and we looked at interfascial lighting. So this is Dr. Alain Langevin's work, landmark work. She's now at the NIH running the myofascial program. And her landmark work showed that people with low back pain had a 20% decrease in the gliding between the layers of the thoracolumbar fascia. So we replicated this in the iliotibial tract of EDS subjects. And we found that there was a 62% decrease in gliding amount. So again, this has significant implications on force transmission as well. Mm -hmm. If there is insufficient gliding, there will be insufficient force transmission. 30% of muscle contraction forces are transmitted through the epimesium paramecium. So if we don't have sufficient gliding and force transmission, then there will be a significant reduction in strength. And it lines up well with the literature. The literature shows that there is about a 30 to 40% decrease in strength 
in EDS subjects. And that aligns very well with impairments that we see in fascial gliding as well. Wow. Okay. My brain's a little bit exploding. There are a lot of different things in there I want to ask you about because it's fascinating research. And I want to be sure that I've got my head around some of the key out outcomes that you found in your research. It sounds like the layers of fascia in a person with HSD, EDS are significantly uh, reduced in their gliding capacity. So they don't move well. So that connective tissue is, would we say it's sticky, it's stuck together, the layers don't glide well on each other? Yeah. Is that an okay way to describe it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then secondly, did you say loose connective tissue in people with EDS slash HSD is thickened even more when there is pain? So that's Dr. Stecco's work. Okay. And so his work on the myofascial neck pain showed that the increase in the loose connective tissue layer was consistent with increases in pain level. And as we treated that, or he treated in his study with various modalities, and that loose connective tissue decreased, then the pain level decreased with that decrease in loose connective tissue. Okay. So we didn't measure this specifically in EDS, looking at thickness with pain levels, but every person with EDS has pain, which is consistent with the literature, mm -hmm. 98%. So all EDS subjects that end up seeing me have pain. Yeah. And yes, they had a thicker, loose connective tissue layer compared to myofascial pain patients who have pain. And then those are even thicker than control subjects with no pain. Gotcha. So it's interesting to me because um, I've often wondered why clinically I, I treat myofascial pain in a couple different ways, just with some different manual therapy techniques, one being dry needling, but the other one being um, myofascial release, like John Barnes method, which is just very long, gentle holds. And I've always wondered to myself, why do bendy people love this so much? Because they do. And I've always wondered, what is it about the fascia that makes this feel so good for them? I mean, I, I get more of the giant needling part maybe, but the specifically the myofascial release, there's something about stimulating those layers to be more gliding, to be more lubricated has really helped. So now this makes sense, just talking with you about what we're finding about people with hypermobility and their layers of fascia just aren't gliding well. So modalities that help to support improved gliding feel really good for them. So it's cool to connect some dots uh, that I've been wondering about. The other thing that I've been wondering about is you mentioned that when we palpate the tissue of someone with HSD or EDS, it's very soft. One of the things that I notice is that sometimes that is the case and sometimes that is not the case. Sometimes it's like layers of bricks. <laughs> I'm feeling layers of bricks or I'm feeling a bog. It's one or the other. And so I'm curious, could that be indicating a different genotype that I'm feeling? And, and does this get us into this weird, difficult to understand phenomenon of we might be dealing with a genotype versus a phenotype? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, I've experienced the same thing. What is also interesting is I will palpate a patient, mush, mushy, yeah. soft, all the way through. 
I'll stick a needle in and that needle will bend. (laughs) And I'm spending the whole session getting new needle tips during the treatment. It's quite remarkable. So even though the tissue structure is super soft, it can still be quite sticky. So that's the physiologic process of the gliding and forced transmission. And so that seems to be quite unique to EDS from what I looked at, not saying that it can't happen with other types Mm -hmm. of pathology. Mm-hmm. The other question that you bring up is this question of genotype versus phenotype. So this is the one type hypermobile EDS, which is likely the same pathologic process as HSD along the same continuum. And molecular studies corroborate this belief that when we look at HSD subjects and EDS subjects on a molecular level, it looks like a similar type disruption with a fibroblast to myofibroblast transition that occurs under inflammatory and stress conditions. Um, So when we look at the HSD and EDS subjects over time, we still are unable to find a clear genetic origin. We find a molecular explanation that seems to be quite clear and has been reproduced in subsequent studies. And it is this molecular process that probably leads to this epigenetic phenotypic variation that we see. So it's probably unlikely that these are different genotypes and rather they're different phenotypic expressions. Even within the same family, we'll see large variations in phenotypic expression and severity. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's really interesting. You mentioned that you might be palpating a boggy, mushy tissue, but yet still it's very sticky. And I'll have to pay attention now moving forward. Am I noticing this on particularly people with hypermobility, but often the needle just gets literally stuck in the tissue and it just it does not want to come out. And I wait and I wait, you know, because I, I want it to settle before I pull it out. But I'm wondering if that might be a feature of the hypermobile um, fascia that it, it's actually sticky, that it just is grabbing onto the needle so hard, it just won't let me take it out. Yeah, it, it could be. The other thing that um, occurs with fascial tissue, this is Dr. Robert Schleip's research that fascial tissue has contractile properties Mm -hmm. and particularly in response to some of the inflammatory mediators that are produced. So that could be one of the reasons why you might Mm -hmm. experience that change in fascial tissue. Mm -hmm. And then we mentioned Dr. Alain Langevin, one of her really amazing works was with acupuncture needles. Mm -hmm. And on, I believe it was electron microscopy, she showed actual twisting of the fascia around the needle itself. So we know that there may be contractile properties with Dr. Robert Schleip's TGF-beta-1 study, which was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And then with Dr. Longevin's study, 
with the acupuncture needles, which was equally amazing too. Uh, just a really amazing work that's being done regarding fascia. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about that. So right now, clinically, do you primarily treat people with these hypermobility syndromes? It sounds like that's at least one of your big areas of, of focus. I'd love to hear about what have you come upon as your best practices clinically for treating this population? Yeah, um, I do primarily treat um, HSC and EDS. And I don't think it's a volitional choice. It's just these populations are um, affected by myofascial pain. Mm -hmm. And so they just naturally end up being the population that seeks me out. My running joke is I just want to see someone without this condition, but they come in, they describe their condition. I'm very excited because I say, oh, goody, I can fix them in one session. <laughs> and they come in, of, of course, you have EES. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that just kind of is how it works. Otherwise, I'm passionate about all things fascia, all, mm. con all conditions, diabetes where it also results in changes in the connective tissue. Mm. These are all just really bad surgeries, post-surgical yeah. scars, and the densifications and scarring that occurs from that, just fascinating. Yeah. And being able to clinically see and treat these patients yeah, and, and see the science come together clinically mm -hmm. and to be able to affect such a great change is it was incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Much tougher with HSD and EDS uh, because of the pathology that occurs in the fascial tissue. Yeah. And so there's a lot of reframing about what expectations are. Yeah, clinically, that is one of the biggest things is good communication with the patient and then expectations on yourself as a provider. Otherwise, you'll burn out if you think you're going to fix everyone. Yeah. Yes, I definitely find that as well as in my own life and certainly with uh, patients and clients that I work with is adjusting expectations. How do we understand uh, what these conditions mean for life? From now on, forevermore, this body has unique needs and it will need to be taken care of in a special way, <laughs> not just in this acute thing that's going on that someone's seeking treatment for, but forever. So yes. yeah, how do you find that that is received by your patients and how does that impact their outcomes? That's so tough because part of the research I, I'm doing and looking into is with the UC Wen team and is looking at how the neurodivergent brain and mind affect treatment and communication. And we're seeing a large percentage of HSD and EDS populations are neurodivergent, even without a clear diagnosis, but there's a strong tendency. And so that's going to change how our patients communicate with us. So I'm neurodivergent and a lot of people think that, oh, it must be so much easier for you to talk to another autistic. It doesn't make it any easier than talking to a a neurotypical person. 
the challenges are all there. And what is important for us as practitioners to be aware of is that a um, patient-centered, culturally sensitive, trauma-informed perspective is crucial. And that's the other piece of it is how much trauma have our patients endured prior to seeing us. And you'll see that it colors everything. I'm sure working with these patients, you see that. And that's the other piece is how much can they absorb this session? And over the years, I've had to learn, maybe it's not me. So maybe they need to hear it one time from me. They need to hear it five, six more times from five, six more providers in a kind, gentle way. And then maybe something starts to stick. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And it's certainly relatable to my own experience personally. And as a practitioner, I definitely tend to go way overboard and say way too many things (laughs) at each session because my brain is going nuts with all these different pieces of information. But I definitely am finding that that concept of pacing with the patient education, as well as all the different modalities is really important. And as you said, having a trauma-informed approach that gives agency to the, the patient or client and reinforces that, hey, you're in charge of your body. We're learning about it together and you get to make decisions about it. And we're gonna be patient with it patient with the paradigm shifts that might need to occur and patient with the body and what it needs to feel safe so that it can receive treatments and start to move in the direction of positive adaptations and positive outcomes. And that's hard to find, I think. I try to do that, but having been a patient who went through the same gauntlet that everyone always goes through to get diagnosed with Hypermobile EDS, yeah, it's just really hard to find. And it's so damaging to go through those experiences that are disempowering and dismissive, and it takes some recovery. Yeah, there was a wonderful paper put out by Claire Francomano regarding the diagnostic odyssey. And then there have been subsequent papers on the isolation, the difficulty with communication, mm-hmm. the psychological trauma. And of course, I'm science brain. So I always go back to the, well, TGF beta one, you're going to be releasing all this. What is this going to do to the fascia? But what's just so interesting about that paper, I diagram the whole thing, is that, yes, it takes the 10 years of the diagnostic odyssey, similarly to other chronic conditions that other patients might have. But there is also this possibility of healing that occurs with a diagnosis. Not for everyone, but for those who do, that diagnosis gives them that chance to get out of that cycle Mm -hmm. of constantly accessing a violent and alienating healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. That was my experience, surprisingly so. When I got an official diagnosis, I was shocked by how much it changed my life and allowed the freedom to move forward with healing, with learning how to arrange my life so that 
I am okay. <laughs> like all the different pieces that needed a bit of rearranging, but I would never be able to get to the starting point without that diagnosis. So I'm a huge advocate of diagnosis. So what do you see happening out there in the world as far as increases in diagnosis of HSD and HEDS? And where do you see that going in the next handful of years? Yeah. So I have the clinical side and then the personal side. The personal side is that we have to do it with caution. This, of course, comes from my yoga training is when we impose our own standards and beliefs on other people, we can do a lot of harm. So even for a diagnosis, when a patient comes in, let's say with a diagnosis, I'm not going to question that diagnosis. Maybe I don't agree. Maybe I do. In those cases, it's not my place. My role in this situation is to treat this patient with whatever tools I have. So that's one of the things that I've been hearing quite a bit with this increase in awareness and diagnosis is here's your piece of paper. I checked off all your boxes. There's nothing we can do for you. And you're just going to have to learn how to deal with it. I hear that a lot. Yeah. And morally, I have a problem with that. And I don't know how I feel. I just know I have a problem. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just finding that that does not sit well with me. Mm -hmm. The diagnosis mm -hmm. without having something to offer that says, here's how I can help you manage this. Is that what you mean? That's correct. Yeah. And, and we always have to be cautious of that as healthcare providers. That's not how I was trained. That's the only way I can respond was I had amazing teachers and they never said it was okay to tell somebody they had a diagnosis and say, there's nothing we can do. Have a great life. Uh-huh. Yeah. We always try to support patients. Right. The other issue that I'm seeing is the evaluation for neuromuscular conditions. I'm seeing a little bit less of this now with all the efforts of the EDS Society for Education. But about a third of the population on the higher end of the estimate have generalized hypermobility without issues, non-syndromic, asymptomatic. And so I've also seen, here's the Biden score. You got a high score. Here you go. You have EDS. Yep. I've seen that and too. And that one's, yeah, that mm -hmm. one's pretty astounding. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to respond when I see that one. I just, yeah. well, we'll just treat you and see what's, what's going on. So that's just the personal side mm -hmm. uh, and the anecdotal stories that I see in terms of diagnoses. My hope is that with more training and more education, there will be more healthcare professionals who are able to diagnose this condition with high quality and high standards following the 2017 diagnostic criteria, understanding hypermobile spectrum disorders and what those look like, not just hypermobile EDS, HSD. And then the new conversation with the EDS Society is what does this look like in children? And they have a new criteria, which is also wonderful, is looking at what this looks like and gives more guidance on how to follow them. 
Oh, that's fabulous. I have not seen that. I'm going to have to look for that. Uh, yeah, I agree. More education. When I hear of a physician in my town who is even willing to make a diagnosis, it gets me pretty excited because we haven't had that much until very recently. There are a few that are learning about it and feel comfortable enough making a diagnosis. But then there's, of course, a few steps beyond that that we need to go, which is, okay, treatment approaches and a strong referral network locally so that they know who to refer to, to who can help with these different pieces. And the, the whole network of connections needs to be strengthened probably everywhere. I mean, I know in some larger cities, people have an easier time finding practitioners who are knowledgeable, but where I live in Asheville, North Carolina, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. I think it is getting better, but it's rough. And one of the things that concerns me a little bit on this topic is the geneticist locally used to be the, the go-to person to make this diagnosis. If a primary care physician suspected EDS, hypermobility, spectrum disorder, they would refer to the geneticist and that's who diagnosed me. He was lovely. He knew everything about it. He was like, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And then I was like, this is great. I found a doctor who he knows all about it. And then of course, soon after they stopped taking referrals completely because they were so inundated with referrals. They had to say, no, we can't see any more of these patients. And what concerns me about that is that not only were they willing to be comfortable and confident in their diagnosis, they were able to have the right ears listening to this patient's story to know, is there something else that needs to be ruled out before we actually make this diagnosis? And now there's nobody doing that piece. Is there another type of EDS that this could actually be masquerading as or another connective tissue disorder? Anyway, that's what's happening in my area. Yeah, I, I would say that, and I hear this a lot, and everyone always qualifies, like here, but I will tell you it's the same story everywhere. Oh. And even where there are centers, because centers are becoming available, even where there are centers, I hear the same. Hmm. I, I hear the same story. Part of the issue is access to resources. There are finite resources. The physicians, the healthcare professionals who are able to diagnose and treat this condition also have finite time and finite resources. They cannot possibly see every single patient who wants to come through the door. It's just not physically possible. Many of the healthcare providers who treat this have EDS. Yep. They absolutely cannot see enormous loads because right. if they don't take care of themselves, they will not be seeing anybody. That's right. The other part of the system issue is let's say you're confident because the, most physicians that I talk to or I show them the diagnosis, I talk about it, especially in my specialty where we are trained in neuromuscular evaluations, all sorts of other zebra diagnoses that we're trained to evaluate. And they just don't want to deal with EDS. That is their choice. And part of the issue is the systems available. So what are the treatment systems? What are the support systems? One of the problems that I'm on a high horse about but have no solution, so I don't get to complain so profusely, is the use of communication devices with physicians. It's unregulated and it is so absurd. It's to the point where healthcare professionals 
can't even do their work because they have to answer emails and messages three, four hours a day on top of their charting and patient care work workload. And it's because of these system issues that a lot of physicians choose not to evaluate. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And unfortunately, it doesn't work for anybody. It's very discouraging. Um, but again, from the yoga background, we can only do what we can in, in the environment and with the resources that we have. And so it doesn't mean that we give up and it doesn't mean that we stop trying. Mm-hmm. It just means that with every person we encounter, we do our best. And when we have to do and engage in self-care and set boundaries, we set those boundaries. Mm-hmm. But we continue every day to try to make system changes and individual changes on individual lives. And when we're not burnt out, we can do that. You know, mm-hmm. I was on the phone a couple of weeks ago arguing with a radiologist. And this is within the university system. So there's a university-based patient. And I was so thankful that I had such a great work environment that I could be on the phone spending time Mm -hmm. arguing with another doctor over the care of a patient. Mm -hmm. And, And it's things like that where every day I take joy and the little individual differences that I can make in one person's life. And I try not to worry about these bigger issues and let it change who I am and how I interact with patients. Yeah, there's no other way to do it, I guess. And I have to imagine that there are so many people that we'll never hear about doing the same thing in their tiny sphere of influence. And over time, we'll have more and more of those people out there. And That will push the needle. I think it is starting to change a bit. Definitely, especially with um, wonderful healthcare professionals like you, really in your area, making such a huge difference. And there's more and more of us coming into existence. And as a group, we'll make large changes. Yeah, one of the things that I'm really interested in is building a stronger network among physical therapists who are interested, wanting to learn more and PTs in training, helping them to learn. I gave a talk at the local PT school that I went to a couple years ago about EDS and HSD to this group of PT students. And I got emails from people in that class for up to a year later. People would email me and say, I'm just remembering when you came to talk to us, it's all making sense now. And several of them emailed me saying, I think I might have this. Because it was so much more than I got when I went through. So things like that make a really big difference to yeah, upcoming huge. practice. Yeah. A little bit actually goes a really long way. That's what I try to stay focused on in my area and excited about. So last thing I would love to hear about from you is in your personal experience and your clinical experience, what are a few nuggets of self-care uh, practices that you generally see that help people the most, whether it's self-myofascial release or self-massage or strength training or Pilates? What is it that you tend to see helps people live better in their hypermobile bodies? Yeah. uh, What a great question. There's a couple of self-care practices that in general, I recommend. 
And it's always so tricky because every person, not just every person on earth, but particularly HSD and EDS Mm -hmm. is different. Mm -hmm. So you can't go on a support group and say, I'm going to do what this person is Mm -hmm. doing. And you can't go on a support group and lash out and say, hey, this absolutely does not work because every single person with hypermobility disorders is different and unique. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things is you have to get to know your body. You have to get to know, am I going to tolerate this? Am I not? And if you don't, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And if you tolerated it two weeks ago, but not today, then you have to explore why. So really getting to know your body. The other thing is movement. You can't get away from movement. So with bad pots, it might look like bed mobility exercises. You're Mm -hmm. kicking your feet in bed, but you have to move. And we know that from connective tissue research. So if Dr. Elaine Longevin's work, if you take a pig and you traumatize the fascia, we stretch, we move, the densifications, the changes in there resolve. If you take a pig and you injure the tissue and now you hobble the pig, meaning you bind up the pig, you don't want to allow movement, that tissue never goes back to gliding, even with movement interventions and stretching. Mm -hmm. So then we start thinking about more manual and injection type treatments into the fascia. But that's to drive home the point of you can't stop moving. If you stop moving, that is dangerous to your body. It doesn't mean go over-exercise. It doesn't mean run a marathon. It means you need to be attentive to how sedentary you are. And it doesn't mean don't use your braces. It means you need to move. And particularly with bad pots, you need to still move. And then the last part is understanding the number of spoons you have in a given day. Yeah. Your energy conservation. What are your techniques? What do I have the capacity for today? And being aware of that, okay, if I'm going to push it a little bit today, that means tomorrow I'm going to have fewer spoons. Maybe for the next week I'm going to have fewer spoons, but I'm okay. That's the trade-off I'd like to make. Um, And it's really just understanding your body and figuring out how to work with this wonderful miracle that is given to you, this life, this physical being, however it's presented to you and live the best life you can. Yeah, that's great um, guidance. I hear a lot of yoga in there too. It's largely about self-study and studying ongoing. How do I respond to that? What were the factors? Keeping a log, keeping a journal of how we respond to different activities or modalities is really important. And you're right. Everyone is so unique. And then there's another piece about brahmacharya, basically, which is energy conservation in a way and being truthful about how much energy you have, setting those boundaries and making decisions based on what we most value. What is most important about life? Am I going to use my spoons on something that isn't important to me? Probably not. Let's just go ahead and set that boundary. But if I'm going to use them, I'm going to use them where it matters and I'm going to plan to recover. So taking that agency over what matters about this miracle of life that I get to live, how can I live it 
to the best of my ability and manage my resources as well as I can. And it might be any kind of modality of movement. It could be anything. People are all going to respond differently to different things. Yeah, I, I think what's the most important is, does it bring you joy? Mm-hmm. Right. It's not going to be one type over another. If you're doing it with an exercise practitioner or your physiotherapist, is there a loving, trusting bond? Again, yoga, coming back to yoga, are crucially important. Yeah, they are. That um, ability to learn to co-regulate in those supportive therapeutic relationships, it's like the training ground for the whole nervous system in a way, or it can be. Yeah, it's so ironic as I continue to deepen my yoga studies. You start to see in Eastern philosophies and approaches, it's that relationship mm-hmm. where healing occurs. And in the West, we try to remove that. We say you come in as the treating provider and you will be objective and you will not embroil yourself in this person's affairs. You will... Provide the injection, the treatment, the diagnosis. You will administer that and you will leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just in Eastern culture, it's completely the opposite. It has nothing to do with the administering of anything. And it has everything to do with the relationship. Exactly. So listeners, keep looking for those settings and those practitioners that help you to feel seen and safe. That's all I can kind of recommend to people. And when you don't have that, keep looking. Keep looking because that's such a huge part of it. And as practitioners, we take care of ourselves and hopefully avoid burnout so that we can continue being that person for others. Yeah. Dr. Wang, it is just fabulous to talk to you. I feel like there's so much more I want to ask you about, but um, I want to respect your time. And this has been so fabulous to hear about your work and your experience and your research thank you so much for being here. Is there any last thing you want to add? And I'll give you a chance to to share with listeners. How can they learn a bit more about you? Where can they find you? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And there is also so much that I want to continue to talk about, especially the molecular biology, which puts most people to sleep, but absolutely (laughs) fascinates me. You can find me at my website, tupelopoint.com. And point is with an E from my dance background. And that's also social media. Please keep in mind that I am not very active on social media. And that is a personal and volitional decision Mm -hmm. as I continue to put my intentions towards things that are important, like the research that I do, that I love and my patients. Thank you so much. And thanks for all that you are doing on behalf of myself and all other zebras everywhere. You're contributing so much to our base of knowledge that's going to support and serve all of us. So keep up your good work. And maybe we'll have a conversation about molecular biology another time. (laughs) I would love that too. Thanks so much. Catch you next time.